Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Mark of the Beast by Rudyard Kipling. First published in 1890 in a magazine called The Pioneer. This is, uh, I think, a very good story, although not the Jungle Book or one of those other really, really famous Kipling stories, to help us uh, get a sense of Kipling's range and uh, how he uses different genres. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, um, a question that always arises with an Englishman who is writing about class differences in India uh, is what's the political implication here? Uh, A second question is, uh, to what extent do we think the human being behind the writing of the story takes a position one way or another on whatever are those political issues? But in this case, we have what looks like a supernatural story uh, which is kind of, uh, at, if you think about it a certain way, a surprise if what we need to be dealing with includes large chunks of quite real conflict in the colonial era. So we've got mm-hmm. the natural and the supernatural uh, mixed at different levels, in a sense, in this story. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a story that's also, um, I'd, I'd read it before, um, when I, I think I may have, I don't know if you suggested or I suggested, but uh, it's one of those ones that I, I like because it really does in, encourage deep reading. Um, because if you just treat it like a, you know, a regular short story, you know, just a bit of entertainment, not not much to think about here, just, you know, ghost story or whatever, um, then it, 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 it can do that job. But actually, it works much better. Uh, as a a reflection piece, I think, and and it does encourage rereading. I agree. I th- I think one is moved to read this story um, with care, in part because as uh, people in the 21st century living on the western side of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, We've got a whole lot of strange language to deal with here, uh, talking horse and uh, and so on. I mean, what does that idiom mean? You know, so you've got to stop for that. But I think you're also quite right that coming back to to the mere plot of it um, gets us to go deeper and deeper as we rethink it. So let me uh, perhaps just start out with a simple view of what's going on. Uh, sure. Um, it begins with a native proverb. Your gods and my gods, do you or I know which are the strongest? So presumably this is a, a native proverb, means some native has said this, and the presumably English writer of the story begins the whole thing with that. Um, then um, he tells us that east of Suez, uh, Providence doesn't really have as strong a hold over things, which is the Church of England. So something else is going on. Uh, The story is told by a narrator 
who uh, recounts an experience that he has with uh, another person who lives in India, uh, Strickland, who is a local police chief in the British Raj, and uh, a newly arrived, comparatively newly arrived landowner, someone who's inherited the land named Fleet. The story concerns New Year's Eve when the the straggling um, population of uh, Englishmen who are vastly outnumbered in the north of India gather together uh, near where Strickland lives in Dharamsala um, to have a New Year's Eve celebration. At the end of that celebratory evening, which the narrator calls excusably wet, mm-hmm. uh, meaning it's understandable that everybody was drinking a whole lot of alcohol. However, we also see that that Fleet drinks a whole lot more alcohol than anybody else. Um, as they are leaving, they pass on, on the road a temple to Hanuman, the monkey god. And there's prayers going on, middle of the night prayers, or early, early morning is more like it. And Fleet just walks right in, taps a couple of priests on the back as he pushes by them, walks right up to the stone idol of the god, and grinds the ash of his cigar into the into the idol's forehead, which... Since the idol is a monkey god, that gives us one possible meaning of the title, The Mark of the Beast. Mm-hmm. A silver man, capital S, capital M, comes out from behind the idol, mewing like a she-otter, and goes and puts his head on the breast of Fleet. He runs up, embraces him, puts his head on his breast, and then releases him. Uh, but Strickland realizes this is a problem, you know, defiling a temple. And it turns out there's laws against Englishmen doing that. So he quickly gets our narrator and fleet out of there. In the course of the next 24 hours, we have the adventure. And the adventure is to deal with what happens to fleet. He starts wanting to have underdone chops. He gets ravenously hungry when they go to the stables just to have a stroll around. The horses go mad uh, at the presence of something, which we later find by the process of elimination uh, by having only one person leave, that it's Fleet's presence that are driving them crazy. Ultimately, he turns into a wolf man, although uh, not necessarily with a shaggy skin, and they have to uh, restrain him and they go out, and the, the, the silver man they see through the, uh, the window is uh, sort of haunting the house. Uh, that the, the native gods, perhaps, or this curse is transforming uh, fleet into a beast. So the narrator and Strickland go out and capture the silver man, and they torture him with heated gun barrels and uh, twisting ropes around him, thongs. Um, And eventually he stops mewing, speaks, and we believe lifts the curse. Um, They let him go. And in comparatively short order, uh, Fleet wakes up. He's himself again, but... uh, he thinks that it's just the night after the New Year's Eve celebration. He's lost that whole 24 hours. Um, 
In the course of this, uh, he is visited by, at Strickland's suggestion, Dumoise, or however that name is to be pronounced, the local physician, who says it's hydrophobia. But hydrophobia, rabies, at this point, has absolutely no cure. Um, so when he comes back, the doctor, the next morning, um, to help lay out the body for burial, he's <laughs> surprised and a little bit annoyed that his diagnosis wasn't exactly right. So he leaves in a huff. And uh, the story ends with uh, Strickland uh, having said years later to the narrator, you know, maybe maybe this should be put before the public so they'll understand better. But since the public didn't know about the curse and what followed, it's not clear from that statement what it is that Strickland wants the public to know. The narrator says he doesn't think the public will really get much from it. They'll even believe it, but he's doing it anyway. And that's how the story ends with with the narrator talking to us about whether or not this story will be in any way meaningful. Mm -hmm. I think you did a really good summary there. Um, I do have a question, though. I assumed and and I'm, I'm not sure that I, I, I keep re-looking through it, but I don't think it's there. I don't think the word wolf ever does come up. I assume he is being turned. It's a werewolf story, right? But it, I don't think it ever actually shows up. There is howling for sure. Well, it says uh, we waited and waited for Fleet's reappearance. This is after Fleet had gone running off at one point and ordered dinner in the meantime. We could hear him moving about his own room, but there was no light there. Presently from the room came the long drawn howl of a wolf. Mm, okay. And then later when they're restraining him, um, we're told that it's a real mess. Um, but when Fleet regains his own uh, status quo ante, when he takes the human form or the humans and the human senses he's had all along, he complains of the smell. Yeah, the doggy smell. <laughs> exactly. So uh, since since the doctor doesn't notice a pelt on um, Fleet, I think we can suppose that he didn't actually turn into a wolf-like being in shape. Mm -hmm. But I think we can suppose that he became wolfish in in odor and in behavior and so on. He loses the ability to speak, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, the, the meaning of the title and uh, and the adaptations uh, uh, really obsessed me uh, in reading about this story. One of the things um, that happens is uh, he uh, Fleet says, um, look, there, I've made the mark of the beast, um, putting a... Uh, an ashy dot on the on the forehead of Hanuman, right? Yeah. Um, but then later on, there actually is a, a beast. He's referred to as a beast in Fleet. Fleet becomes a beast, and he has a mark upon him uh, on his chest that looks like uh, a double rosette is how it's described, or like the uh, double rosette of a leopard. And in one of the adaptations of this story, they don't go the werewolf route. They go the leopard route. So it's a were-leopard story in that version. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I don't think it really makes a huge difference um, to the story what whether it is a, a wolf or a leopard that he's turning into, um, other than it's it's not a conventional uh, once you get bitten you can't go back sort of deal. Like you can't get un, unbitten by a werewolf in traditional European werewolf stories, right? Um, you can have the spell broken, but not usually by having the the werewolf conveyor, you know, unbite you or whatever happens in here. So I was curious about that. But um, I'm also really curious about the the actual image of what that looks like on his chest. Uh, Fleet dis- says, wow, what strange mosquitoes you have around here because they – they bite a lot, but they bite in a pattern. Right? <laughs> and when they examine it, uh, it looks like uh, a leopard spots, two leopard spots close together, which to me um, makes me think of human teeth having bitten into a human <laughs> body and left teeth marks, right? Right. Uh, which is, I think, what we're supposed to gather but that also is not quite enough for me <laughs> in and just leaving it there because in the comic adaptations uh w- one of them shows it sort of like two fang marks with sort of uh you know like a vampire and I thought mm, that's not exactly right with sort of distressed distressed edges mm. um and then the other is just a, a sort of a bunch of bite marks and I I think that that's not right either uh, sort of just an unpatterned marks and in that in that same adaptation, they also do something else that I think is interesting. They they talk about the heated barrels of the gun, um, but they only call they only show one barrel, whereas in the story itself, it is actually two barrels, um, at least, and it's a shotgun, I believe. Um, right, but I assume that the shotgun barrels can be removed from the stock. Yeah, but therefore it, you could it, use them individually. I think that that's possible, but I think I think they might be, um, you know, like a just a double-barreled shotgun. Uh-huh. And the reason I I think that that's more interesting is because if they are using a double-barreled shotgun end on uh, a man, uh, the Silver Man, to torture him, which is pretty much what it it implies. Um, I see where you're going, Jesse. I like this. It absolutely mirrors the the mark upon Fleet. And later on, when they return to the temple and Strickland tries to say, you know, we'll do whatever it takes to make amends, they say no offense was done. No action happened here. Actually, I think they say no white man has touched. Right, right. And, of course, there is another white man in the story other than the Europeans, right? The silver man is white. But even going a little farther than this, um, there's a story that came out – or a novel that came out the exact same year as this story uh, by another Englishman, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And it's called The Sign of the Four. It's a Sherlock Holmes novel. And – one of the things that they do in the many adaptations of that novel is they, you know, show the document that shows the sign of the four. And in, in that novel, there's a, a white man, a European, who 
gets into a criminal arrangement with three uh, Punjabi uh, um, uh, criminals, and they make a pact, and their pact is sealed by the sign of the four. The symbol in uh, Hindi and in uh, Punjabi for four is uh, what looks like an eight, except the very top of the eight is missing. And that would look like uh, the bite marks of a man uh, on a man's skin. And it would also look like the barrel marks of a shotgun barrel pressed against somebody's chest. Interesting. I had not, I had thought of the barrel being used the side of the barrel yeah. being pressed, yeah. not the end of the barrel. But if it is the end of a double barrel, then we get that, that double image, as you say. There's something magical going on here in the narrator's own thinking about this, which you picked up his description, of course. Um, when he says that it looked, this double rosette, looked like the pattern of spots on a leopard. Um, I've never lived with leopards, but I've seen families of leopards in uh, in uh, places like the San Diego Zoo, and uh, they don't have the same patterns. In fact, you can tell the leopard by his spots um, is an old saying. So the idea that, by golly, we know what a leopard's spots look like, they will make this pattern, that's not even true. Mm -hmm. um, it brings me back to the notion of that first epigraph, uh, whose gods are in charge here. Mm -hmm. Because the rosette, as it's described, reminded me of a rose window, a standard uh, fixture in a cathedral. And a main part of the action is in a native temple. And everything here is doubled, um, whether it's the Christian gods or the, the native gods, whether it's the Christian temple or the native temple, whether it's uh, one rosette or two rosettes, whether it's a man or whether it's a beast. Um, we've got this sense of doubling and uh, an underlying tension where the Englishman um, – just think of themselves as, as better than the natives. Uh, so they know which side really counts in this doubling. But within the realm of the natives' own world, um, they seem to know which side counts. Um, and it really does. I mean, it, it changes fleet enormously. I, I can't help but wonder when Strickland is told that no white man has touched anything here, is it that the removal of the curse by the silver man who is the double for for fleet, you know, two different white men who are associated with Hanuman, the monkey mm -hmm. god. Um, is it that when he removes the curse, which he only does under duress, sort of like why is it that the, Eng the Indians do what the English tell them? Is it when he removes the curse, he also removes the memory of the initiating episode from the minds of the people in the temple? Or... Is it that when he removes the curse, all of the other Indians know that they are simply to have official amnesia, 
Oh, no, boss. Yeah. No, no, no. There's there no problem here. You know, um, maybe this is not an act. Maybe that part of it is not supernatural, but in fact, a demonstration of really pitiable subservience. There's a there's a, a lot of um, sort of this story is almost you could fold it in half like a, an ink blot and see sort of that double mark almost come across. I, I also think of the that ash being put out on Hanuman um, and he says, I'm look, I made the mark of the beast to me that that's not a very funny joke. Um the mark of the beast has got to be a reference to the the Bible, and you know it's a symbol of the the devil or something like that, right? When he says it there, um, but I also think of that a cigar pushed being put out on on a or rubbed into uh, a statue's forehead would leave a a round mark or maybe two round marks, kind of like a coffee cup, but you know with a little bit of coffee on it uh, set down on a piece of paper, it could leave. Uh, overlapping uh, circles, which uh, this story is like that. We've got the beginning, we've got, you know, this is how the things were uh, back then. Um, here's the story. Um, is the things that happened didn't happen later on. And then later on in Strickland's life, he asked me to write down this story as it was uh, to set this record straight. There is no record, right? Right. It, this is uh, a story that requires requires uh careful attention to what's going on i'm i always i consider myself so naive when i started reading this story he said it was a very wet night and it, well, he says on new year's eve there was a big dinner at the club and the night was excusably wet i'm like what does that mean it's like it's of course it it'll be raining on on new year's eve in india i'm like Oh, that's strange. Why? Why would that? <laughs> I'm like, it took me a few pages to suddenly realize. Oh, their actions—they seem kind of like boisterous. <laughs> right. It's because they're completely soused, right? Um. So that little line of just not, not spelling it out exactly makes us read a little deeper. But, um. I want to also offer why four and that Punjabi symbol. Uh, for the number four might be a logical one in that there's four white men in this story. Well, there might be more, but there's four with names. There's uh, well, no, strict- three with names. Right. Three with names. One of them, I think, is supposed to be Kipling. And in one of the adaptations, they just name him Kipling. Um, that Given that it's told in first person by a narrator um, who's you know lived in India and familiar with the, the place, it could be Kipling, or it's the unnamed narrator. Right. Um, then there's uh, Fleet, who is the victim of a werewolf bite, perhaps. Um, there is Strickland, <laughs> Strickland, Strickland, he's a strict uh, follower of the rules, the policeman. And there's uh, the doctor, um, who I've forgotten the name of, but starts with D, right? D-U-M-O-I-S-E. Yeah, Dumois. Well, Dumois. depends on whether he's British or French, but right. Well, there's four Europeans there, right? Um, th- there's also another white man, the Silver Man, um, and both the Silver Man and the and the the Beast version of Fleet are kind of half men, um, in the sense that one can't speak at all, and the other 
uh, eventually can't speak at all. Um, they are incomplete circles compared to the uh, other ones. I, I don't want to go too far down this line of just focusing on the symbol four, but I, I it resonated with me somehow. And in seeing the not the original magazine publication, but the first book publication, I was struck by another possibility. And this one, I think, is equally strange, but also weird. Uh, <laughs> uh, that is, uh, in the first pub- book publication, it was in a book called Life's Handicap, Being Stories of Mine Own People uh, by Rudyard Kipling, it came, coming out in 1891. And... On the title page, there is a mark, a symbol, that uh, would later have uh, other meanings to a lot of other people, but it had a meaning, presumably, to Kipling, and it's a swastika. It just randomly placed swastika in the official book publication. Oh, that's not random at all. Obviously not. Not random at all. Well, the the swastika, you know, is is a crucial image for the Aryans. And by the Aryans, I mean the original Aryans, the the lightest-skinned peoples that moved into the Indian subcontinent. In the 19th century, in an, uh, an effort to uh, demonstrate the antiquity and importance of the German people, uh, there was a great identification with the Aryans, the the people, the lighter skinned people who came down from the north. And the Germans were trying to, that is the German speaking people. This happens even before there's a Germany. The, the Grimm brothers are involved in this as well. There's the idea that um, the, the so-called uh, barbarians of the north, the lighter skinned people, the Teutons, actually have an older and deeper culture and deserve to dominate the darker skinned people to the south meaning mm-hmm. the Greeks and the Romans. And so when uh, National Socialism takes over in the 1930s, they use trappings that remind them of this Aryan um, background. And so nowadays, post-Hitler, we think of the word, in this country at least, Aryan, as referring to the racial ideas of the Nazis. But they picked that up from, in fact, the study of India. And mm-hmm. in India, the, the swastika, was, although turned the other way, the swastika was a key image of um, unity with, um, diverse, uh, with diversity. It's the South Asian equivalent of the yin-yang symbol that you find in East Asia. Mm-hmm. So this uh, is not also, random at all. No, that's what I, I mean is that, and of course it is uh, the reversed swastika in, in the book. Um, Kipling is putting it there, presumably, as Kipling is putting it there, for exactly that purpose. Um, the title of that anthology, or collection, I should say, Life's Handicap, is a bit baffling, but being stories of mine own people, this is very interesting, because Kipling, um, he grew up, he was born in India, he grew up in India, and he... In he has this, and it's very ambiguous this, the, what we're supposed to take out of this story. But I think that it is about um, kind of he is completely anti-colonial in a certain sense, but he still loves it, <laughs> and it comes through so so much in this story, um, in so many little touches. So one of the things that uh, happens at that meeting. Um, 
in the uh, in the club, all these white men drinking the night away, um, is that there is a, a sense of the 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 charm of Englishmen together, but there's also a contempt for what they would do. Um, so one of the things that happens at that meeting, it says. I'll just read little sections here. When men foregather from the uttermost ends of empire, they have the right to be riotous. <laughs> I don't think that that is completely goes unchallengeable. In fact, I think um, we are expected to challenge all of this with the number of lies and mentions of lying that come up um, later on in the same paragraph. Half a dozen planters had come in from the south and were talking horse, as you said, right? Quote, quote, unquote, horse to the biggest liar in Asia who was trying to cap all their stories at once. Who is this person at that party? Everyone there was, everyone was there and, and there was a general closing up of ranks and taking stock of our losses in dead or disabled that had fallen during the past year. And then a little later on in the same pa paragraph, then some of us went away and annex. He's talking about what will happen after, right after the uh, after this this party uh, in future years. Then some of us went away and annexed Burma, and some tried to open up the Sudan and were opened up by fuzzies in that cruel scrub side Saukim, and some found stars and medals, and some were married, which was bad. And some did other things which were worse. And the others of us stayed in our chains and strove to make money on insufficient experiences. I'm not thinking that this can only be read in the humorous way. I think it can be read in another way as well. I agree with you completely, Jesse. I, I think that you've read a passage, particularly that, that last one, which generalizes what what Englishmen, the many things Englishmen will take from their too little experiences in India. Um, you've hit on a passage that makes this really a great story for me. And, and what that is, is the voice of that narrator, that outermost narrator who knows that it's wrong to torture he knows that they've become beasts. He says that we should be ashamed of ourselves for what we've become. But of course, how could we not do that when it was necessary to save our fellow Englishmen, even though our fellow Englishmen had desecrated somebody else's temple? So what, what this story is showing us is not, I mean, sure, it sort of could be funny, but Kipling is giving us an example of how Someone with any humility and sensitivity would realize that the master is degraded by keeping slaves, that the colonizer is degraded by oppressing colonials. And the man who shows this the most is, in fact, named Fleet. I know. It's a metonym, right? Well, it's a metonym for two things. It is, of course, the, the English ruling the seas, you know, and coming in with their military might. But Fleet Street is also the heart of English newspapers. So getting the, the, the patriotic fervor up 
and saying, aren't we great? You know, it's the stories that are, in fact, driving imperialism every bit as much as the military tools to make money out of these things. Mm-hmm. And so the ending that says, I don't know if this story will do any good, is really a comment back to the English readers. Having seen this, do you realize what we are becoming, what we have become because we are colonizers? It's a it's a powerful indictment by somebody who is speaking, as you say, from within the group. He is an imperialist. And it shames him. The the when they when they're not worrying about fleet, they they talk about horses, right? They they go to see the horses. The, this quote I think is going right back to that beginning with that that group of big liars trying to outdo each other, talking horse to the biggest liar in all of Asia. Who is the biggest liar writer from all of Asia? The guy who tells fiction stories. It's Kipling. Um, listen to this. The men, the man who had a weakness for horses never wearies of inspecting them. And when two men are killing time in this way, they gather knowledge and lies from the one from the other. They gather knowledge and lies, the one from the other. One way to read that is that one lies and the other one gathers knowledge from those lies. And the other way to read it is that you can gather knowledge from fiction. Indeed. Indeed. And that's what he wants us to do, because uh, when you think of something as powerful and involving for so many millions of people, as this story hints at with its supernatural occurrence, there's always more to say. those other things that I might want to say here has to do with the subtlety of Kipling's reference. Um, in the Bible, there are two references to lepers. Um, one of them is uh, the leper who is made clean by Jesus, and he is told to go to the temple, but to speak not of how it is that he got clean which seems to parallel what goes on with uh, this story. Um, the silver man goes back, but nobody knows anything. Nobody says anything. The other is um, leprosy seen as a mark put on a thief. This happens in two kings. And it's a curse for someone who has, in fact, stolen money. The mark of the beast in Revelations is a mark based on having stolen money. Um, the 30 pieces of silver are what is taken as the, to motivate the, the greatest obvious crime that a disciple makes against Jesus. So if we see the mark of the beast as turning someone into a leper, as making that person um, anathema because he wants money. The mark of the beast is what is on England for 
taking all of the riches of India. That's right. But I think there are uh, other points too. Yeah. For instance, Jesse. Oh uh, well, um, you know, there's there's a there's a bunch. One of the things that struck me, and I I went back and I like underlined it three or four times. Um, when Fleet is is out in the yard uh, in the evening. Uh, rooting around in the earth, um, he says, doing botany, like gardeni- gardening, botanizing, you know. The smell of the earth is delightful. <laughs> I don't think that's what he's doing. But it wasn't clear to me exactly what he was doing. Um, then a little later on, um, he he's, um, he's convinced to come inside and have some more raw chops, basically. And then there's this just this tiny little line. Now a December evening in northern India is bitterly cold, and Fleet's suggestion was that of a maniac. So that back half of the sentence, you know, staying out all night and going for a walk in cold northern northeastern India or northwestern India, is is reasonable, sort of. I mean, he's staying out all night. He's crazy, but it's not December. It's January. There's something wrong in this story, right? I, I don't this know what you story, mean. This story is lies. What, why isn't January winter? They're in January. Right. This is the second day of January. Right. It's the second night of January. But he says, now a December evening in northern India is bitterly cold. And Salit's suggestion was that of a maniac. Ah, I see. But but Fleet is making that suggestion on New Year's Eve. No, he's making it on on New Year's Day. Yeah, but remember, he doesn't know that. That's right. But the narrator does. Well, the, yes, that's true. That's true. That's true. It's there, there's something. This story is being told in retrospect, so it's possible that he's made a mistake. But. Uh, it's never been corrected in any of the ver- – that is, Kipling never corrected it. I don't think it – I think it's supposed to be another one of these points that makes us question what's actually going on and take what is sort of a a, a light narrative with a – it even ends with laughter um, and make it a lot more sinister um, – as a as an ending, uh, there's almost nothing more frightening than these guys laughing at at the fact that they've done all this torture for nothing. <laughs> Except it isn't for nothing. They've reset the uh, the, the way he ends the story. Um, Fleet says, "Yeah, you should really keep those terriers of yours in better order," saying that. That's what's causing the this doggy smell. And he says, try sulfur, Strick, <laughs> to get rid of that doggy smell. Mm-hmm. Right. And then uh, it goes, then it struck me that we had fought for Fleet Soul with the Silver Man in that room and had disgraced ourselves as Englishmen forever. And I laughed and gasped and gurgled just as shamefully as Strickland while Fleet thought that we had both gone mad. 
Indeed, they, that's, that's one of the beautiful ways in which Kipling is showing us that you don't have to be as obviously bestial as Fleet in order to have been bestialized by being a colonizer. There's a line there just where you were talking about the dogs. Any man who keeps half a dozen terriers must expect a nip now and again. Right. And uh, that nip could be from the silver man on your chest. The nip could be the the uh, resistance of the natives. That nip could be the animals uh, resisting being uh, constrained. But the fact is any man who keeps a dozen, half a dozen terriers must expect a nip now and then. He is outnumbered by his terriers. He thinks he can control them. But in fact, it is natural that they would nip him and that he not be able to control them. And Kipling clearly knows this. He's letting us know it through the story. The final sentence of the story is also pretty haunting. I cannot myself see that this step is likely to clear up the mystery that is telling the story. Because in the first place, no one will believe a rather unpleasant story. And in the second, it is well known to every right-minded man that the gods of the heathen are stone and brass. And any attempt to deal with them otherwise is just condemned, is justly condemned. <laughs> Which is, of course, a way of saying that a right-minded man is not a right-minded man. Exactly. Yeah. I'm glad that we discussed this, Jesse. And another day, we should come back to it. I like it. Hi. Right. That sounds good. I'm...